Howdy, folks. Welcome back to F1 Break Check. This week, F1 is back in the saddle on U.S. soil at the spectacular Circuit of the Americas. We'll discuss the history of CODA and of the troublesome and sometimes weird history of the U.S. Grand Prix. We'll take a long walk off a short board and dive into the technology of the plank, its history and significance, and we'll break down all of the latest news, rumors, and results from this weekend's action. F1 Break Check starts now. Welcome. You are listening to F1 Break Check. The epic podcast for all things Formula One, where we discuss technology, history, news, and perspective. With your hosts, Scott Vick and Corey Green. All right, so welcome back, everybody. Corey, how are you doing, my friend? Uh, good, man. Uh, we were talking right before the podcast. It was it's been a it's been a week. Uh, yes, very much so. It's Wednesday. We actually meant to record on Monday, but yes. Just uh, the day-to-day has gotten away from us. So yes. today was actually our first day to be able to set some time out to actually be able to record. It's been tough this week. Monday, we may run into the same issue because on yeah. Monday, I have to go do my civic duty of getting out of jury duty. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been called to duty for, it's been a couple years now. But actually, the last time I was called, I was picked. Right. I have a great track record. Well, before this time, I had a great track record of never being picked. So <laughs> this last time it was a speeding case. The guy decided to represent himself. <laughs> My last name starts with B. So I'm almost always in the default group to be picked. Mm-hmm. Prosecution's up there and she's asking me all these questions about speeding and do I think it's fair and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that most definitely. Just pay a ticket. You shouldn't go to court. They got you nailed. You know, they're not going to pull over somebody that's going 25 and a 40. You know, it's it's somebody that's speeding like I yeah. tend to do every once in a while. Anyway, so <laughs> this guy ruined my perfect track record of never being picked. I got picked. And fortunately enough, it was only a couple hours. But still, it's it a pain of having to do it. So what about yes. you, Scott? Have, have you been picked? Uh, I've been picked once before. Kind of the same situation where it was uh, just a guy who was fighting a resisting arrest charge. It was pretty cut and dried. It wasted my whole day because it was, we sat around all morning only for us to be released for lunch, told to come back in two hours. We answered a few questions, Got I got picked. Whole trial probably took less than 45 minutes. We wow. deliberated for about 45 minutes and... <laughs> <laughs> and that was pretty much it. <laughs> That's awesome, but though, man. You know? But it's still wasted an entire day. So, you know, not a lot of fun. Before that, I had a pretty much spotless track record of always being able to get out of it and everything. So yeah. my hope is, is that it'll be kind of the same thing where it'll be, I'll show up and they'll almost immediately tell me, okay, we don't need you to go home type right. thing. All right. So let's talk the history of the U.S. Grand Prix and specifically the Circuit of the Americas. First, U.S. Grand Prix that was held as an F1 championship event was held in 1959 at the Sebring Circuit in Florida, which the one and only time the championship event has ever been held at Sebring, most notably famous for the 12 hours of Sebring endurance race. The race was won by Bruce McLaren, which made him at that time the youngest winner of a Formula One event. So 1960, the race moved to Riverside, California. Jack Brabham had already won the championship so a large number of the competitors didn't even show up uh most notably enzo ferrari said championships already been won we're not even going to enter the race (laughs) so it had a very very light turnout for that particular race 
And then in 1961, the race moved to Watkins Glen in New York and was hailed by the drivers as probably some of the best run events on the Formula One calendar. The drivers, by and large, absolutely loved Watkins Glen, both as a track and for the way that the event was held. Everything seemed to always go very, very smoothly at Watkins Glen. And later on, when there were multiple events held in the U.S., Watkins Glen became known as the U.S. GP East. And I'll explain why East here in just a second. So um, in 1976, Chris Pook, a promoter in California, took and convinced Formula One to have a second race in the U.S. and it was held on the streets of Long Beach, California. Many people called it the U.S. Monaco. <laughs> because it was very similar in the fact that being in California, you had a lot of celebrities showed up for the event because of its, you know, Long Beach's proximity to Hollywood and Los Angeles. And because it was held on a very tight, very twisty track with the concrete barriers on each side of the track. Watkins Glen continued on the calendar until 1980 and Long Beach kept going until 1983 when both events eventually dropped out because of the money required to hold the event got to be too much. Um, so after Watkins Glen dropped out in 1980, in 1981, Caesars Palace in Las Vegas actually built a track in the car park <laughs> <laughs> and they actually ran the West Grand Prix, but it was by and large universally hated by the drivers because being Las Vegas, being in the desert, it was very hot. They weren't able to do a very good job of controlling the sand blowing onto the track. So it made the track super, super slippery and everything. So like I said, by and large, the drivers largely hated it. Uh, being run in Las Vegas. And we'll talk later a little bit about how things are going to be a little different when the circus returns to Las Vegas later this year. 1982, the circus takes and invades Detroit, Michigan in downtown Detroit, the home of GM and several of the other largest U.S. car manufacturers. This time, they held it two years at the same time as the Long Beach event, but a lot of people also tried to call this race also the U.S. Monaco because this one actually raced through a tunnel in Detroit, and it actually at one point even went over some railroad tracks. Oh, God. <laughs> so it That's was... Lovely. Could you imagine um, that happening today? No, it never <laughs> happened. Never <laughs> happened today. Partially because of safety concerns and yeah. partially because of just the drivers would have said, no, we're not going to do it. 1982 actually had the distinction because there was actually the only time in history that the U.S. held three Grand Prix with a Grand Prix happening in Long Beach, Las Vegas, and Detroit. The Detroit track was another one of those ones that they didn't do a very good job of maintaining it. And it, the track was, like I said, was super bumpy, especially over certain sections, you know, like the railroad crossings and things like that, to the point where the track was actually literally the last year that they held the race in Detroit. The, the tarmac was actually literally ripping up as the drivers were circulating the track during the Grand Prix. 1984 was, this was two years before I started following Formula One. And I was, I wish that I had known about it because at the time I was living in Oklahoma and it would have been kind of cool to go see this particular race because it was basically in my backyard. But in 1984, 
Dallas hosted its one and only Grand Prix. It was actually held at Fair Park, which if some of you probably will remember from a couple weeks ago when Corey and I were talking about, I'm also a huge American football fan and particularly of the University of Oklahoma, and they actually play a game at Fair Park. The Grand Prix was actually held at Fair Park, but it was held in, I believe it was either June or July, and the track temperature was 150 degrees. The conditions at Dallas were very, very similar to like what we saw at Qatar this year. It was so high heat and so high humidity that a number of the drivers had to drop out because of health concerns. The tires were literally melting on the track because it was so hot. That was the only reason why Dallas ever got to host one Grand Prix, one and done. (laughs) So then in 1989, after Detroit finished its run, they ran for two years in Phoenix which suffered from really awful turnout. There was only like 27,000 people showed up on race day. You go to even the lowest attended event, and I mean, and it's 80, 90,000 on practice days, and it's well over 100,000 at most of these races, you know, right. now for on race day. So for 27,000 people to show up on race day, that was just unheard of. And then also because the track was run in downtown Phoenix, it was basically straights with 90 degree turns onto another straight. It was really, really difficult to come up with any kind of interesting feature for the track layout. It was really a very, very boring race. I remember watching the Phoenix race the two years that they ran it, and it was just, it was really awful. It sounds like it. It sounds almost as bad as NASCAR. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. It ranked right up there with IndyCar used to have a street race that was really very, very similar. So then we had a little bit of a drought from 1990 until 1998 when there was no Grand Prix held on U.S. soil whatsoever. And then Tony George, who at that time was the owner of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, worked out a deal with F1 to build a road course on the infield of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway's infield. The way that the track was laid out is they came out of a turn onto the short chute between turns one and two, went around turn one, and the front straightaway for the Grand Prix circuit was the front straightaway of the oval part, but run in reverse. So instead of running north to south, if I remember correctly, the front straightaway for the Indy 500, the cars run north to south into turn one. And instead, the Formula One circuit ran in the opposite direction. We've talked before on a couple of occasions on this podcast about the 2005 debacle after the formation lap. Only six cars actually went to the grid. All the cars that were running Michelin tires exited the track, went into the pits, packed up and went home. Surprisingly enough, that even after that debacle, the race still continued for another two years, but albeit at much, much lower attendance. I saw a figure said that there was a pro- they estimated there was 210,000 fans that showed up for, I believe it was the 2002 or 2003 event wow. on race day. So there was definitely a hunger for 
F1 in America and the fans definitely showed up for a while. But then, like I said, after the 2005 debacle, at the next two years, the, the attendance was just dismal. So that kind of brought about the death of the U.S. Grand Prix for uh, a few more years after 2007. In 2012, Formula One finally returned to America at the Circuit of the Americas, which is a purpose-built track just outside of Austin, Texas. You and I have talked about this during the preview last week about how we both love the Circuit of Americas. And I love, I do, I love the Circuit of the Americas, the track. I love everything about it. I love the way that it's laid out. I love that it produces such fantastic racing. It always provides lots of interesting strategies and things like that during the race. So it's also been the site of some absolutely epic battles. Uh, One of them being, I think it was either 2016 or 2017 when Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton were fighting for the championship and fighting hard. Coda proved to be a pivotal race in that championship that year. Having said that, I love Coda. I love the track. I just wished it wasn't located as close proximity to Austin as it is. (laughs) because i love coda i hate austin austin is just a horrible horrible place for a multitude of reasons and we'll get into into one of those reasons in a little bit when we're talking in the news section but all in all it's just a fantastic racetrack last year we took we had our first double grand prix in america where we had both miami and the circuit of the americas And as we talked about earlier this year, Corey and I are both are not huge fans of the Miami event, not nearly as much as we are of Coda. I think Miami is starting to build, and so we'll see what the future holds for that one. And then this year, Formula One's going to return to the desert of Las Vegas for a very, very much hyped event in a couple weeks. First of all, Las Vegas, of course, has grown up, not just in stature, but also in infrastructure. And so they're not going to actually be racing down just a very oversized car park at Caesars Palace anymore. This is, they're actually going to be, it's going to still be a temporary street course, but part of the straightaway will actually be run down the famous Las Vegas Strip. And in addition, they have built a tremendous amount of infrastructure and still are building a tremendous amount of infrastructure in and around where the track will be that will be permanent going into the future. Like I was talking about earlier, one of the complaints about the track when Formula One was racing in Las Vegas in the 80s was they didn't do anything to control the blowing sand in Las Vegas and stuff. And so it was coming across the track and making it incredibly low grip. Whereas this time around, they have actually put in various mitigation strategies to keep the dust and the dirt down to a minimum so that hopefully over the course of the weekend, the track will actually should rubber in pretty nicely and should make for an interesting event. It's going to be a lot like Miami where there's going to be a tremendous amount of hype around it, a tremendous amount of the, Hey, look at me, celebrity crowd showing up and everything. So, but we'll, uh, we'll see what kind of racing it produces later on this year. You bring up celebrities. It'll be interesting to see how many celebrities actually go since Las Vegas isn't very far from LA or, Malibu, mm-hmm. wherever, right? The vast majority of them are. So it'll be interesting to see who shows up. Yep. It'll be very interesting to see. Miami and Coda always get a really, really good turnout, you know, mm-hmm. from not just from 
fans in general, but also from the celebrity crowd, as we've seen quite famously over the last few years, and which actually has even required some changes to the grid procedures after, what was it, two years ago when Megan the Stallion took and snubbed Mark Brundle on, on the grid? Basically, her bodyguard was about ready to pummel him on live television. <laughs> and then F1 said, hey, if you come on the grid, you have to talk to the media. You can't use your bodyguards to shield yourself. It'll be real interesting at Las Vegas to see A, who shows up and B, how they act. You know, what kind of show that Las Vegas Convention Bureau can put together. I mean, they're so used to putting on shows out there anyway, so you know it's going to be entertaining. Yeah, I just hope that the race is going to be as interesting as the side shows are going to be. Right. <laughs> this week in the tech corner, we were going to talk about suspensions, but I decided to table that until next week. Instead, because the plank, as it's been referred to, kind of came into the news this week. So I thought we would talk just a little bit about what the plank is, why the plank exists, and why the disqualification of Hamilton and Leclerc this week were not new. Getting into it, first of all, when we refer to the plank, Basically what this is, a high-density piece of wood that is 10 millimeters thick that is required to be bolted on the bottom of the car, and it has to run the full length of the underside of the car, starting from right underneath the driver's cockpit all the way back to the rear diffuser. Now, the plank came about in 1994 after the tragic incidents at Imola because this was only a couple years after the ground effects had been outlawed in Formula One and the cars all had to have flat bottoms. Well, the aerodynamicists figured out that by creating the diffusers in the back, which basically channel the air out and away from the car at the back end, they figured out that if you set the ride height of the front part of the car really, really low to the ground and you set the back end higher up that even with the flat bottom it still created almost a ground effect like way that the air traveled underneath the car so it basically created a low pressure zone at the front of the floor and of course it sped up as it went towards the back and then the diffuser did its job of increasing the air velocity coming out from underneath the floor and through the back of the car. So it basically created a tremendous amount of downforce. There are many people who speculate that the part of the reason behind Senna's tragic accident at Imola and the reason for Roland Ratzenberger's tragic accident during qualifying or the speculation to this day around Senna's accident was after having run for several laps behind the pace car, the tire temperature had decreased enough and that the the cars could actually be run i mean literally just i mean millimeters the front edge of the floors were actually run literally just millimeters from the ground and so the, the ground the clearance was almost microscopic and the speculation is is that because of senna's running behind the safety car for so many laps that the tire pressure had come down to the point where the front edge of the floor was actually rubbing against the tarmac during those first couple laps. And that led to the back end snapping out from behind him and driving the car off the track into the wall, which caused his fatal injuries. After that incident, the FIA drafted a whole host of new rules that the teams now had to 
abide by in order to try to make the cars more safe. One of those new rules was the introduction of a high-density wood plank attached to the bottom of the cars that would require a certain ride height be maintained underneath the car so that it would reduce the amount of downforce created by running the, the front edge of the floor so close to the ground. Well, the FIA was smart enough and knew that they would try, yeah, the teams would try to get around like it, a bunch of that kids. they mandated that the floors had to maintain a certain thickness over the course of a race weekend. When they go through scrutineering on Friday, the plank has to be at least... 10 millimeters thick and then over the course of the weekend they can wear away as much as one millimeter the plank can be nine millimeters post-race and it's still considered legal by the fia that's where lewis and charles yep. got into trouble this weekend is both of them had worn it away and both of them their plank measured out at eight millimeters which were therefore deemed to be illegal under the rules. Pretty cut and dried. I can see both teams are probably going to protest, which is what happens. Anytime you're disqualified, the team is immediately going to protest and say, hey, there was a mitigating factor behind it. I don't see either one of them successfully getting the results overturned. So Scott, I, one thing I was wondering when Hamilton and, and Leclerc got the, the penalties is, why didn't the FIA go after the entire team? Because surely they would know, hey, if half the team's running too low, more than likely the other half is as well. Why wouldn't they expand their findings or try to find who else in that team was also riding too low? Okay, well, the reason why they didn't go after the whole team was because, as we've talked about before, each driver has their own style, if you will. So therefore, even though their styles may be somewhat similar, drivers will still have different setups on their cars. And the difference between the setups will vary between depending upon how the driver likes the car setup and things like that. So each individual car is treated as, even though they're part of a team, each car is treated as its own entity. So that's the reason why you only saw Leclerc get disqualified and signs did not because signs car passed scrutineering ah, so because all of the check. cars okay yes all of the cars are checked at the end of the grand prix all of the finishers because every car that finishes the grand prix is put into what they refer to as park for may which means the teams are not allowed to touch the car at all and they are gone over with a fine tooth comb they measure everything on the cars leclerc because of the way that he had his car set up over the course of the weekend, wore away too much material from the plank. So therefore he wasn't legal and therefore he was disqualified. Whereas Sainz had a different setup on the car. And so his plank was not rubbing as much. And so therefore he didn't lose out on his position because his car was legal. And same thing with Hamilton is yeah. Hamilton's, setup was such that it wore away too much of the material on the plank in the end russell slightly different setup didn't have that problem and that's the reason why they don't go again after the entire team it's like i said just a minute ago the each car is considered its own entity inside of the team so that's how come one car can be deemed legal and another car can be considered legal and retain 
their finishing position, or in this case, right. actually get promoted one position yeah. because the, the car in front of them was disqualified. Yeah. That's the reason why Leclerc and Hamilton were disqualified and the whole reasoning behind the plank, why it exists, things like that. Two questions came out this weekend is why did this suddenly become an issue? We've had the plank since 1994. Why has this suddenly become an issue? And secondly, what changes have been made to the cars since the introduction of the plank and the plank now after the reintroduction of the ground effects to Formula One? So I'm going to tackle the second one first real quick. So basically, when the plank was introduced, it was designed to keep the cars from having the front edge of the floor of the car too close to the ground. The flat bottoms required that the front nose be very close to the ground and the rear to be higher up in order to create that increased velocity of, of air underneath the car. Well, once ground effects were introduced, it required a change to the setup of the cars, whereas the back end, now that they have ground effects, the back end has been brought down relative to the front end so that it's much more flat because of the way that the air travels underneath the cars and accelerates before it exits at the back of the car through the diffuser. But because of that flattening of the cars where they have much less rake to the suspension setup makes it a little bit different, a little more tricky on the setups. And last year, the reintroduction of ground effects, there was a lot of teams that actually were not wearing away the planks at all because of the porpoising of the cars, as we've yeah. talked about quite extensively here on the podcast. The teams were actually, in some cases, in order to minimize the porpoising, we're actually running the cars at even a higher clearance than what was required by the rules. So the, the, there were times where in order to reduce or, or eliminate the porpoising, they were actually running to a point where the planks were not actually even hitting the ground. Coda is in need of a resurfacing. Yeah. So it's pretty bumpy right now. And then with the reduced practice time, this weekend, as soon as they were done with the first practice and then qualifying on the same day, they went into part for May conditions, which means the teams were not allowed to make any more adjustments to the cars hmm. until race day. And because of that, basically Hamilton and Leclerc just got the setup wrong and they were running too low of a clearance going over the bumps and everything at Coda caused that plank to wear away to the point where it was no longer within tolerances of the rules. One last thing that I wanted to point out, a lot of people were wondering how come all of a sudden this thing is an issue. And the only thing I have to do is to point back to 1994 at Spa, right after the introduction of the plank, Michael Schumacher was actually disqualified from his win at Spa for the exact same reason, wow. because he had, he had gotten the setup wrong. He had worn away too much of the plank and ended up getting disqualified. And there's actually been one or two other incidents that have happened with other drivers and teams. I don't remember them, you know, the specifics offhand, but there have been other incidents. It's just, we haven't seen one in probably seven or eight years. We have, we seen a disqualification because of the plank. It's always been there. As the old saying in racing goes, if you're not cheating, you're not winning. <laughs> 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 so teams are always going to take, try to, run the cars as close to the ground as they can. So to maximize the aerodynamic forces. And as long as they do that, you're always going to run the risk of either damaging the car or doing something to the car that is going to take it beyond the allowed limits and make it disqualified. <laughs> right. So, 
But anyway, so there, there you go. There's your history and technical background on the plank. Yeah, it's one of those things that you rarely hear about unless there's an infraction like this weekend. And it taking out two of the prominent drivers as well. Just out of curiosity, because like I said, I've been following the sports since 1986. And so I remember when the plank was first introduced after, you know, in 1994. My question to you, Corey, is before this weekend, were you even aware of the plank oh, yeah. on the cars? Okay. Yeah. I'm just curious because there's a lot of people that were not even aware that the, the you know, oh. that the plank even existed. We've already talked about Leclerc and Hamilton's disqualification. We can all agree that, yeah, it sucks, but rules are rules. First off, let's jump into McLaren's weekend triumph. Great qualifying pretty good result Lando finished where he started he finished in fourth pretty good showing in qualifying during the sprint shootout for the sprint race Lando qualified fourth and Oscar was in fifth for the sprint race both had a really good showing Oscar finished in 10th had a couple of issues and everything during the sprint but all in all other than Oscar's retirement during the race on Sunday McLaren had a really really great weekend Lando finished third and then was elevated to second after Hamilton's disqualification on Sunday he took the lead at the first corner from pole sitter Charles Charles Leclerc and led 19 laps so I, all in all, I'd say it was a pretty darn good weekend for McLaren. Yeah, it was amazing to see. And every race, they seem to just be getting that much better and really edging that gap down from Red Bull. So no longer is it the 30 seconds and Max can go have tea time during his <laughs> tire changes. He actually has to race now, which I'm yes. sure is frustrating. But they have really taken down that that edge that Red Bull once had, that dominance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even at the end of the race, the only thing that I saw as a possible negative over the course of the weekend was McLaren's decision to send Lando back out on hards again mm -hmm. after his second pit stop. I think that had they sent him back out on mediums, I think that he would have had a much better chance of challenging Max. And I definitely don't think he would have lost the position to mm -hmm. Lewis. Right. But he still ran a fantastic race. And even their team principal after the race said, the fact that we haven't won yet is kind of getting a little frustrating. He says, <laughs> we have been so close. We are getting, I mean, we yeah. are right They're there. Right there. That we were right there on the cusp. I mean, we led 19 laps, you know, of this yeah. race. Even after Max passed Lando, Max wasn't pulling away from him. You know, Lando was keeping up until Lando's tires started to go off in that second stint. Even in, up until that point, Lando was keeping the gap within two to three seconds yeah. of Max. So that right. just goes to show the strength of the McLaren and how far they have come. So I don't think it's a matter of if they're going to win a race this yeah. season, which, I mean, they've already done that in the sprint, in the sprint last race. Yeah. I think it's a matter of when they are going to come home in first place on Sunday, mm -hmm. whether it's Oscar or Lando, right. which I think there's going to be some bad blood in the McLaren garage. If for some reason, Oscar takes that first win before right. Lando does if things play out that way. The team's going to take the win, no matter how they get it. Exactly. But I think it's going to be very disheartening for Lando if Oscar takes his first Grand Prix win before yeah, right. Lando does. With the finish this weekend, McLaren has actually jumped Aston Martin 
in the constructors championship. And I think that they have a very good shot at being able to catch Ferrari and end up finishing third in the constructors. I think with the recent upgrades to the Mercedes, I don't think that they're going to be able to catch Mercedes. I mean, it's possible because Mercedes only has a 22 point lead over Ferrari right now, but with Ferrari sliding a little bit, the new upgrades yeah. to the Mercedes, I don't know if McLaren's going to be able to catch them, right. but I definitely see them being able to catch Ferrari because they're consistently finishing better than Ferrari. That And because they're literally only 80 points behind with the points that are on offer for the remaining races of the season, I definitely think that McLaren has a very good shot of finishing third in the constructors this year. If they do, that will be probably one of the single biggest turnarounds in the history of Formula oh, yeah. One. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's tremendous how how much they've gone from the first nine or 10 races. I think they were they they had only scored, I think, you know, maybe 20, 30 points. And they were a joke earlier. You know, the first yes. part of the season, they were a joke. Yeah. I mean, we even made the joke earlier on in the season that Daniel Ricardo had just as many points as McLaren did <laughs> after the first couple of races. <laughs> you know, after the first four or five races, Daniel Ricardo had just as many points as yeah. McLaren did. But I think that this probably has to go down as one of the single biggest turnarounds yeah. in the history of F1 that, that, right? a, that a constructor and its drivers have made just this huge of a leap after such a dismal showing in the first part of the season so you mentioned ferrari you, you ready to start talking about their rodeo yeah so yeah i, I think a rodeo is uh, a very good way to describe their weekend because they were up and down just like riding a bucking bronco and eventually <laughs> they got thrown in the case of leclerc i mean he had an absolutely yeah. fantastic Friday, qualifies on the pole, albeit because Max exceeded track yeah. limits on his last lap. But still, like I said a minute ago, rules are rules. He yeah. exceeded track limits, and so his lap got deleted. He gets demoted to sixth, and so Charles takes the, the pole. Now, even if Verstappen's lap had stood, Leclerc still would have qualified second and he would have only been, I want to say it was like a couple hundredths of a second off of Max's time. Just absolutely fantastic result in qualifying for Charles. Come race day, it all goes pear-shaped in the fact that, you know, he loses the lead at the very first corner. Lando jumps him at the start. He didn't get a very good start and Lando just got a blazing start. Mediocre race. Come race day, you know, he loses out at the first corner. And then Ferrari cocks up the strategy, leaves both him and signs out there way too long, right. you know, and I can't say that they really got it wrong. I think that the conditions required them to change tactics midstream, but I think that they were a little too slow to change their uh, tactics and their strategy. And they ended up leaving both cars out there for far too long. And so I think that they were really trying to go for a one stopper because of the heat conditions yeah, on race day. Yeah. Yeah. The degradation on the medium tires was just too much that they just, cause I really think that they were trying to get to lap 22, 23, 24, yep. somewhere in that window to put on the hards to go the rest of the yep. distance. The medium tires degraded just way too much. They were losing Best, way yeah. too much time. And then by the time they finally boxed, it was game Sweet. over. Your thoughts? I completely agree that it's just one of those things that Ferrari yet again is just they're too slow on the draw. You know, they they yeah. have all these it, the announcers make fun of it all the time where Ferrari has plan A through 
plan H and yet they're still so reticent to make changes on the fly. Whatever their strategist is doing, they're not dynamic enough to be able to say, okay, this isn't working. What can we do at race time? Sunday was a perfect example of that where they were running a great race, but then they didn't take into account how fast the tire dig was happening and they weren't able to pivot fast enough and it cost them the race. Mm -hmm. Just like Charles was saying uh, post-race, he was saying, well, how was I on pole? And now how my fourth place, at the time he was fourth place, he got he did get promoted. But how am I fourth place now? How did that happen? Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of lively discussions afterwards on what happened and why they messed up so so much on, on the strategy. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it seems to hit Charles the most. <laughs> you yeah. know? Because it does. Signs, it, I... signs is funny. Signs will say, I'm not going to do that. No, that's stupid. Why would you even ask me that? Where Charles is a little bit more tactical friendly, I guess. I, I don't know how to put it. He's more willing to give Ferrari strategists the time of day. Whereas when we're talking about signs, in signs, I just, I, I love that driver so much because he is very much like Alonzo. He has the entire race in his head and he, he has it already mapped out. When you have somebody like that, he's going to question his engineer, he's going to question the strategist. I'm not going to do that. Or why am or why are we going to do that? It's not just simply, I'm going to do whatever my engineer tells me to do. He's going to have some question behind it. And unfortunately, Stroll is getting burned time and time again because of this willingness to not question and, and just do whatever the strategist is saying. That, that's my take on it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's a combination of two things. One, science does have a couple more years in Formula One. So that experience does help help him in that respect. But also at the same time, I think that it's, you're right, that Leclerc does seem to defer to yeah. the engineers and the race strategists more than what Carlos does. I think part of the reason why Carlos, where he and the engineers and the strategists will butt heads more and where Carlos will make calls that go against what the strategists and the engineers and stuff are saying is also partially because his father's a world multi-world yeah. champion rally driver. I think that part of it is, is that growing up and watching his dad, that he might've picked up a few things mm. from his dad to say, you know, hey, don't be afraid to, afraid to question things. Yeah. Ask questions. And when your butt's the one that's in the seat, yeah. when your butt tells you something and the engineer's telling you something different, Go with your butt because your butt's the one that's on the line. Yeah. Your, your butt's the one that's in the seat, but it's also on the line. It's your butt that's got to bring that car home in the best position possible. And yeah. I think that that's where Carlos has the tendency to be more confrontational is not the right word because, I mean, he's he's still very, he's still very much a team player. Dipl diplomatic about it, right. Yes, there you go. That's that's a good way. He's He's very diplomatic about it, but he will voice his opinion. When the car's not right, he will say so. Leclerc, I think, just needs to get more confidence in himself as a driver to be able to have what Carlos has, what signs mm -hmm. has. Yes, just absolutely. He needs to be able to play that out because otherwise, you know, let's be honest, Ferrari is a top-tier team. You mm -hmm. are always being evaluated at Ferrari. Every race, they're evaluating you. Is this guy yes. going to make it? Is this guy going to make us champion? They're always doing that. So if you have that eye on you, at all times, you it's it's your responsibility, not your engineers, not the strategists. 
it's your responsibility to question. So my opinion, he just needs a little bit more confidence to be able to say that because he's a great yeah. driver. He just yeah. needs to have that. Hey, this doesn't make sense. Why are we doing this? Yes, a couple of questions exactly. goes a long way. Nobody's going to get offended, you know? And if they do, they're in the wrong business. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You got to have a thick skin in order to survive. Oh, yeah. No doubt absolutely. about it. Yeah. So on the Mercedes, their upgrades and their strategy behind this weekend. Yeah. The polar opposite of what Ferrari did this weekend would be what Mercedes did this weekend. Mercedes brought a new floor to the Grand Prix as uh, an upgrade to the cars, which Hamilton took and gave it a very enthusiastic thumbs up. And I think we saw with his results from this weekend that it has made the car much more stable, much less prone to the porpoising, providing your setups right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But it showed really, really good speed. Lewis qualifies third on the grid. George qualifies fifth. We saw Lewis played the strategy perfectly, got himself up into second. Unfortunately, disqualification took and dropped him out of that. When you look at it on the surface, Mercedes had a really good weekend. Now, Mercedes are solidly in second place in the Constructors' Championship. I don't think McLaren's quite got it in them in order to catch them. Mercedes have been chipping away at it, making the car better and better and better all the time. McLaren is probably still just a little bit ahead of Mercedes, even with the upgrades from this weekend. Mercedes is not going to stay down long. They have too much money and too too many resources too many smart people and two incredible drivers that they're not going to be down for long. And I think that at the beginning of the season, they were still kind of stubbornly holding on to the zero side pod concept. But after the first couple races, they saw that this is not working. It is time to make that change. And they very quickly pivoted. And then in the time since then, when they went to a more traditional side pod they've been chipping away at it and gaining performance they haven't made the, the you know the enormous leap like mclaren did so it hasn't seemed as significant but i definitely think that they have continuously and incrementally improved the car and unlocked more and more potential out of the car to put them just slightly behind where mclaren is now right thoughts i'm curious though on the floor and then how much of it was the floor and then how much of this was just purely running too low for Austin? You know, I think how, it, I think that, because Red Bull, as we know, Red Bull was sitting pretty high, which mm-hmm. deteriorated their performance. Mercedes was running really low, which obviously increases theirs. So it'll be interesting to see when it's actually a level playing field when Red Bull is sitting at a lower level as well as Mercedes to see really how that is. But like you said. They've been chipping away just very much like McLaren. They've been chipping away at that performance and they are really starting to see those games. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they are nipping at McLaren and Red Bull's hills. Hills. So McLaren is very, very close to pulling level with Red Bull and making it yeah. much, uh, pretty much a straight fight between them. And I see Mercedes being right there, just, just incrementally behind yep. where McLaren's at right now. Yep. So on to the Honey Badger's return. <laughs> yep. So this weekend we got the uh, return of Danny Rick to the cockpit of his AlphaTauri, relegating Mr. Lawson to back to the reserve driver status. Didn't have a great weekend. I believe he qualified 15th. 15th. So 
not great. I mean, made it, I mean, still made it into Q2. So, I mean, that's still, you know, on your first race back, that's not a bad place to be. So he had a much better day during the sprint. So on the shootout, he took and he qualified, I believe it was 12th and he came home 10th. So not a bad weekend. Came home in the sprint ahead of his teammate. Yuki finished 19th in the sprint on race day came home in 15th so he finished where he started not a great weekend but for the first weekend back after an extended absence and also this weekend he kind of opened up a little bit more about the damage to his hand and it sounds like from the way that he was talking is that there was a lot more damage to his hand Uh, than what we initially thought and what was initially revealed to the media. So for him to come back and to do as well as he did this weekend is a a good thing. I definitely think that uh, we'll see a a much better and stronger showing from Danny Rick. Yeah, I I completely agree. This is going to get his confidence underneath him and really be able to help project him to the next few races, the remaining of the season at least. One good thing, Yuki ran a fantastic race. He did. This weekend was phenomenal. He did yes. so well this weekend. Yeah. Really, really happy for him. Yeah, ended up finishing eighth on, on the yeah. weekend. Had, had a really good qualifying. He was literally right on the cusp of making it into Q3. Yep. So he qualifies 11th on Friday. Has an absolutely stellar drive to bring it home 10th, but then was elevated to 8th because of the disqualifications in front of him. So all in all, he had just a phenomenal weekend. And I got to say that I was really impressed I, By you, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I think that having Danny Rick back in the car with Lawson, I think he kind of got caught off guard by how good Lawson was. Right. But now with Danny Rick, with him back in the car, I think it made Yuki step his game up this weekend. What do you mm-hmm. think? The pressure's back. You yes. know that people are looking at you. You may have been signed for another year, but as we all know, those contracts are contracts, but uh, they're more like, Eh, maybe the contract works or maybe it doesn't. Danny yeah, is Yeah, especially with Red Bull. So. Oh, yeah. No kidding. DeVries. <laughs> so, yeah. Say yeah, no more. It, it's uh, definitely will step up his game. And he was impressive this weekend. Yuki was. Yeah. Very, very impressive. Yeah, he really was. Going back to Danny Rick is my complete disappointment in him. And this is just, I just, I have lost so much respect for Danny Rick this weekend. And here's the reason why. As we all know, I am a proud alumni of the University of Oklahoma. I bleed crimson and cream. Anyone who knows me knows my absolute hatred of burnt orange. (laughs) And Danny Rick had a burnt orange helmet with a honey badger on the back of it in a Texas in a UT football uniform. That's University of And the Texas. entire weekend, anytime he was outside of the car and didn't have his overalls on, he had a University of Texas shirt on. And <laughs> just every time I saw it, it made me want to throw up. So. But anyway, I digress. So yeah, that's funny, yeah. <laughs> so now let's oh, go on to, on to Williams. Yeah, yeah. Before we talk about their qualifying, man, Sergeant, again, he's another one that, I haven't had the highest expectations for. I keep thinking that this is a race that sealed his his fate in F1. But Austin, he looked like... He gets off the schneid. He looks like he's an F1 driver this time. And it's just like what we've said in the past. We don't know what those performance metrics are that he has to hit. He looked really, really good this weekend. 
Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. I think the best yeah. that race that I've seen him in F1. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. The qualifying, he didn't look fantastic for the sprint. You know, he, he qualified last in the sprint shootout, and he actually qualified dead last in both. But yeah. like you said, he had an absolutely inspired oh. drive on Sunday. On actually got, got off the schneid, finally got his first points in Formula One. The sprint, he didn't have a great race, but it all seemed to come together on Sunday. And kudos for him. I think he started the year with great expectations, didn't quite live up to them at the beginning of the season. Then towards the middle of the season, especially right after the summer break, he had a run of a couple of really good qualifying, not so great races. And I think that that kind of wore away at his confidence a little bit. And I'm hoping yeah. that finally getting off the schneid getting a point this weekend and he finally got that monkey off of his back of being you know the only driver who hadn't scored a point yet this season yeah. that i'm hoping that that takes and does things for his confidence and that we'll continue to see some better showings yeah. in the, the weeks coming yeah he has a, a few more days until uh until mexico it, it'll be yeah. really nice to see him have that confidence and really be able to push himself into that f1c because that's the last seat that's not open right now it's still open. Yep. So yes, if he can prove himself in the next few races, he's in. Yeah, hopefully. absolutely. And and here's hoping that uh, he he's able to to manage that. Onto the Red Bulldozer. Yeah. First of all, Max didn't dominate this weekend like he has done in previous weekends. I mean, he finished the race only two seconds, two point two seconds ahead of Hamilton. Hamilton was nipping at his heels, um, you know, partially because. Max had some, apparently had, you know, some braking issues. What those were, I still haven't seen anything that, you know, specifically he just, they've just said he had braking issues. Was that enough to keep him? Coda is not a track that required, other than the one section towards the back half of the track, it's not a heavy braking track that I don't think that that played in a lot of it. I think it's more, a lot of the other teams are starting to really catch up to Red yeah. Bull. They didn't run away with everything this yeah. weekend. And well, you called it uh, early on in the season that Red Bull wasn't going to remain this far up the entire season. There's just no way. And we're seeing that come to fruition now. Yeah. So one of the things that I want to talk about and get your feeling on or your, your thoughts of, about is uh, over the weekend, actually it was on Sunday, the race day, that Horner said about Checo. Uh, one of the interviewers, I forget who it was, asked Christian, what do you think that Checo needs to do in order to have a good showing? And his immediate response, just gut response was, he needs to follow Max. That told, that to me, that speaks volumes. Mm -hmm. A lot is being not said in that one sentence. Yes. What are your thoughts on that? It's disappointing, but it is not surprising first of all i think christian is trying to send a message to checo to say you done you did better this weekend than you have the previous weekends but you got to do more so i think that that's part of it but at the same time it's like right now because of checo's position in the driver's championship they're they're still kind of expecting him to support max i don't think that that's really the way to go i really like we talked about during the preview last week mm -hmm. i really think that right now red bull really needs to be throwing their weight 
behind Checo to make sure he solidly stays in second place in the driver's championship. But at the same time, you have a three-time world champion now with Max. And let's be honest, Max is still young enough and hungry enough. A couple years from now, it might be a different case, but right now, Max is still kind of is still young enough that he's kind of in that mode that it's not only do I have I won my third world championship now with, you know, multiple races left to go in the season. But now I still want to win every single one of those races. And the team is going to put their support behind Max to do that. But at the same time, I think that maybe Max needs to say, I'm still going to do everything that I need to do to win the race. But maybe it's time to try to help out Checo as much as possible as well. Does that make sense? Oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah. I just hope that that's actually the case, that they're going to do something like that. I just, in Austin, I just don't see them really supporting him. I see them still going 100% towards Max, which makes sense because, you know, let's be honest, Max, he wants to break as many records as possible. He doesn't care about Checo. Oh, maybe, you know, to some extent, but... His eyes are on what Max is going to do and what Max is going to break and what Max is going to hold titles for. That's what I see more than trying to help out a teammate. History has its eyes on him, and he wants to make sure that he does everything that he can to make history. He's already making history in the number of races that he's won this season, in the number of points that he scored towards the championship he wants more part of it is is that max knows that he and red bull have caught lightning in a bottle because he's been around the sport for so long with his father being a formula one driver Mm -hmm. with his upbringing he knows that no matter how dominant a team is they are never all they're never going to always be on top And so I think that he has enough intelligence and foresight to say next year, McLaren and Mercedes and Ferrari are closing that gap. And maybe next year, you know, maybe over the winter, one of these other three teams is going to find a breakthrough Mm -hmm. that may not only bring them on par with our car, but might actually at the beginning of the season surpass our car. Exactly. We won't be in the same position next year that we are now. So he is maximizing, (laughs) no pun intended, but he is maximizing every opportunity that he has for this season to continue to show his domination and not for, you know, lack of a better term, take his foot off the gas. He's going to keep his foot down for the remainder of the season. Yeah. Right or wrong. That's his mentality. And as long as the team is willing to support him in those efforts, they're going to give him everything that he needs to continue to make that history. Having said that with Mexico being the next race and that's Checo's home race, and he's going to have a ton of supporters from his Mm -hmm. sponsor in Telemex that are going to be at the race. And because of the cash that Telemex provides to Red Bull, that they're going to want to make sure that Sergio definitely has a great showing this coming weekend. So on to uh, Aston, Alpine, Haas, and Alpha. Not much. Yeah. Too much to report on. In some respects, yes. And in some respects, no. So Aston, terrible weekend. Yet again. You know, not not only did Stroll have a bad weekend but even the normally fantastic fernando alonso had a bad weekend in fact Mm -hmm. up until this weekend 
there were only two drivers that had completed every single lap this year. They were Max Verstappen and Fernando Alonso. And then that streak actually came to an end when Fernando had to retire the car, but the floor got damaged on the car and he ended up having to retire during the race on Sunday. So that broke the streak. So now Max is the only driver to have completed every single lap this season. Wow. So it was really just all in all for Aston. It was just a, an awful weekend. And I think they would rather just close the books on it and move on to, to Mexico and hopefully have a better showing yeah. in that respect. And there was no real news that came out, you know, from uh, around the team or anything. So we'll just move on. Okay. Yeah. Alpine, um, I think that, you know, Gasly is like one of those silent horses. He's looking yes. really, really solid the last few races. This yep, race, absolutely. he looked fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, he qualified seventh on Friday for the Grand Prix, brought it home, finished a promoted to sixth on the weekend. Sprint race, he he had a pretty solid uh, outing, qualified ninth, finished seventh. So, Gasly had a really good weekend. And for all intents and purposes, Ocon didn't have a bad weekend. Yeah. Qualifying for the sprint, qualifying itself on Friday. He was in Q3 on qualifying on Friday, had a really solid run during the shootout on saturday had a really good run and then you know he gets nailed at the beginning of the race and ends up having to retire the car so you kind of got a feel for ocon but all in all i mean alpine didn't have a a great weekend but they had a very solid weekend on to haas haas was was one of the two teams that ended up having to start they didn't have a great qualifying and then they ended up having to make some changes to the car Yep. And ended up starting from the pit lane. All things considered, starting from the pit lane for them to come home in what eleventh and fourteenth, even with the retirements and everything, they still had a you know a, a decent weekend. Yeah, not too bad, especially for Haas. Was it Haas or was it Alpha Romeo who this weekend said that they have stopped development on this year's car and they're now focusing everything on next year's car? And that Man. there will be no more upgrades for their particular car. Uh, so, case, I mean, it's a throwaway season at this point for both of those. Teams. It pretty much is. And yeah. I, I have, you know, as much as I hate to say it, I think that it pretty much is just that. It's this point, collect what they can. Yep. Do exactly. what they can, what the race weekends give them. But it's time to start throwing all of the development work into next year's car, especially in the case of Haas. As we've talked about, the Haas car is a complete Jekyll and Hyde. There are some weekends they go like they're going Mach 2 with their hair on fire. They qualify really well. But the thing is, is that come Sunday, consistently, the car just eats the tires and they just their race pace is just not there. And I think that it's like, basically, I I think that they almost need to like clean sheet next year's car and say, this car was horrible we need to basically start with a clean sheet of paper and start developing next year's car now and do as much as we can to improve upon our results and our potential because now especially now that they've got a a much larger coffers they need to start capitalizing on having those extra resources anything else to add or do you think that 
I think we've talked enough for today. (laughs) What do you think? No, I think we're good. All right. So let's go ahead and park this car and we'll uh, be coming to you in a couple days. We have the Mexican Grand Prix this weekend. So we'll be coming to you early next week with our recap of the happenings of the weekend. We'll have a history of the Mexican Grand Prix and we'll be talking about suspensions and the evolution of the Formula One suspension in our tech corner next weekend. So for Corey Brune, my name is Scott Vick. Thanks for hanging out with us and we'll see you in a couple days. Thank you for listening to F1 Break Show. If you have enjoyed what you heard, don't miss a single episode by hitting that subscribe button in your favorite podcatcher. Also, help us grow by sharing us with your friends and fellow F1 fans. We value your feedback and passion, so please take a moment to review our podcast. Your reviews help us grow and improve, and it means the world to us. Share your thoughts, rate us, and let us know how we can make the show experience even better. F1 Break Check is a production of Break Check Media. For your hosts Scott Vick and Corey Broom, until next time stay inside track limits, and try not to pitch it in the kitty litter.